Hi everyone and welcome to episode 4 of the Early Education Show. It's really great to be back with you for another week of discussion of early childhood politics, policy and young children in Australia. I'm Liam McNicholas. I'm Lisa Bryant. And I'm Leanne Gibb. We hope everyone's had a great week and are prepared for another uh, hour or so. No, we're not going to do that. We, we, we hit 50 minutes last week and even though we've always so promised ourselves we'd keep it to a reasonable time frame, but... I think when we're enjoying the conversations, they often just uh, get ahead of us. So we can't promise anything, but we'll try and keep it to a reasonable length this week. But um, we do have some really exciting topics to go through, and they probably will lead to some uh, big discussion. Uh, but we will kick off as we always do. I'm going to turn to Lisa this week to give us the news of the week. What have you got, Lisa? Oh, look, the news of the week has got to be the the article that was in the Sunday Telegraph on Sunday. Well, obviously it was on Sunday, written by Samantha Maiden, the national political editor for The Telegraph. The headline was, Daycare Rorters and Criminals Sending Cash to ISIS Targeted in Scam Crackdown. And I really like this article because every time there's a connection between daycare, family daycare and IS or, or ISIS, you actually dig through the links and there's very little connection. I think it's just part of framing um, childcare services as something that, uh, you know, a bit operated by dodgy people. And I have a theory that, you know, it's a bit aligned with the, uh, with the minister's wish to move on to hourly billing so that these same dodgy childcare services can't actually charge people for the hours that children aren't there. So may not happen, but I think that that's why we're seeing more and more of these articles in the media equating childcare operators with um, being rorters. Yeah, they've, they've come back to this story time and time again, even before um, uh, Minister Birmingham, who we have now. I know Susan Lay was a big fan, and, and Scott Morrison, when they were both... Uh, in the dim and distant past responsible for early childhood. They used to be regularly putting out press releases about uh, rorting that was going on. In fact, I think I tweeted earlier in the week when the, when this, I mean, this this article was essentially just a rewrite of the press release that came out. And I said, I'd love to get an analysis of uh, the press releases that have come out of the education department in the past four years or so, comparing the amount that refer to rorting of the system versus, you know, ridiculous things like quality education and educational outcomes for children. I think it would be a fascinating study. Oh, Liam, those like, things just aren't interesting to people. Rorting, though. Give me more rorts. But the, the fraud has been there for many years in, in family daycare because of the way the whole thing was established and the expansion of that market. But maybe now that it's been escalated to a, um, to, to a, a terrorism issue, then maybe some of that will be resolved. <laughs> But I think they've I've never... They've really been... suggestion there, Leanne, a really good one. If all childcare was only able to be offer, operated by not-for-profit childcare operators, there wouldn't be rorting. Lisa Bryant. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, they've never, they, they've never even suggested that it, isn't, that it is anything beyond a very small minority. I've never seen them give numbers on the amount of percentages they're saying are rorting. It just seemed, and particularly, I think, in the previous parliament, because they were literally doing nothing on early childhood policy, I think it was literally, well, it could be better put out a press release, what can you do? Well, let's crack down on rorters. I mean, that was basically it, wasn't it? Uh, no, it's been a, it actually has been a long-term problem, but I think that now this um, sort of hysteria around those connections is what's bringing it sort of more, um, you know, getting more presence there. But it, it's it's an accepted um, issue that these rorts, fraud, all of those sorts of things have been, they've all been possible within um, a, a form of care that was expanded because it was a cheap way for government to actually fill those gaps, you know, make sure that there was more supply. So it it's a big issue and it's been around for a quite some time. I mean, I think it's how many years, Lisa? It must be four oh, or five years that it's or or maybe years. longer. Yeah, yeah. So it's there, but now it's just much more exciting. Well, I guess we just begin the countdown to the next rotting press release. Maybe we could put, might put up a <laughs> sign or something on my Twitter page which says, it has been seven days since the education <laughs> department last cracked down on rotters. <laughs> well, so we've got that Sounds to look forward to. to. Yeah. 
So we'll move on to the first major topic for tonight, and we're going to be looking at the release of the draft report of the National Evidence Base. So I'm going to give a quick um, rundown just on the report and the Productivity Commission before I turn to Lisa and Leanne. I'll try and keep it pretty quick because we want to get straight into the conversation. But uh, basically, a few months ago, the Productivity Commission was asked by the current government to look into the national evidence base and how they've worded it in their uh, terms of reference is um, the Commission has been asked to provide advice on the national approach to collecting and using data for early childhood education and care and schools to improve Australia's educational outcomes. So that has to be a magnificent, wonderful draft report now it's out. I'm sure we're all going to love it and have lots of nice things to say about it. I'm very looking forward to hearing what Lisa and Leanne have to say about it. But a couple of important things to remember, it is a draft report at this stage. So it comes out as a draft and then there's an opportunity for feedback. And then the final report is due in December. For those who aren't familiar with the Productivity Commission, it is an independent uh, body of well, nominally experts who are basically tasked by the government to look into various uh, society and uh, productivity issues, but with a particular focus on what that means for sort of economic outcomes and workforce participation. It's actually a really important context to remember in the context of the discussion we're going to be have, because not to spoil things too early, but it's possible that the Productivity Commission may not see the outcomes of early childhood education in particular as the same as early childhood educators, for instance. But the Productivity Commission may be familiar to people because they did a very big um, inquiry into early childhood education in general in 2013. And it's 2016, and we still haven't really seen the government do anything to respond to that. And probably for more information, listen to episode one of our podcast when Lisa and I had a bit of a chat about that. But the report is out. We've well, sorry, the draft report is out. We've all had a chance to have a look at it. Uh, Lisa's actually claimed an email that she's memorised it. So congratulations, Lisa. That must have been fun. But um, I was only teasing you. Yeah, I know. Yes, and I've I've pretended I've read it cover to cover, and I've, I've probably had to do some skimming and some some quick reading to pull out the main points just in for the discussion tonight. But I might start with uh, you, Lisa. Look, what's your big sort of you know, pull out from what's your first big thing you want okay. to Okay, my tonight? big take on it is that it's one of the more dangerous of the Productivity Commission reports. Essentially, and what there's some competition trying... for that, Lisa. So that's that's a big call. Yeah, there is. But what it's trying to posit is that unless there's evidence that spending money on education actually works, then that money shouldn't be spent. And therefore, you know, it's already been, the draft report has already been used um, by the government to argue that, you know, really there's no need for, um, despite the additional funding that's flowed to schools over the last few years, there's been no increase in academic performance, so therefore why spend that money? In terms of our sector... I was going to um, say, Lisa, maybe what I should have done at the start is maybe just give a really quick summary of the big key points, because I think it's probably worth, because you've, you've, you've actually hit on the, probably the big thing we're going to discuss, but the draft report sort of in general uh, notes that exact point, that there's been big increases in expenditure over the past decade, but without any substantial achievement in outcomes, that uh, the there needs to be a better... Uh, I'm trying to think of the better right word. There needs to be a better capability to use the evidence base, both from a government perspective and from the people collecting the information. Um, that there are large gaps in the existing data collections, and it particularly identifies early childhood education and care. And that there needs to be better cooperation between states, territories, and the federal government about how that uh, the, how that evidence base is used. So there, there's a lot in the report, but they're probably the four big key takeaways to think about as we go forward. Sorry, Lisa. That's okay. Yes, I, I agree that they're the main takeaways, but the question is, why was this report commissioned? What is it actually measuring? And how will it be used? So they're the important things for me. It seemed to have been commissioned out of nowhere very quickly. It, um, you know, is canvassing what kind of evidence is there for early education. It says, you know, quite clearly at one point um, that uh, the contribution of early childhood education and care to outcomes is a growing body of international evidence on the benefits, but there's limited evidence of the Australian context. 
unknowns include how ACAC attendance affects children's outcomes, including subsequent school achievement and how programs benefit different groups of children and families. This is something that the Productivity Commission used when they were doing the reporting to our own sector that you mentioned earlier, that there just wasn't enough evidence that, you know, that early education really worked for them to take it seriously. Enough Australian evidence. They wanted long-term, you know, longitudinal studies to prove that children were actually better off by early education and care. And in doing so, that enables them to effectively discount the masses of evidence that there is and the masses of evidence from overseas. And I'll just say the, the one paragraph that really annoyed me on the report, and then I'll shut up and let you speak, Leanne, is the, um, the one that says, information on young Australians' development of language, literacy and communication skills can be used to assess progress against national education objectives relating to these areas of learning. For example, the early childhood education and care objective that children are effective communicators, and that comes from the EYLF, might be measured using individual scores on the communication skills and general knowledge component of the Australian Early Development Census. That might not sound that scary, but if you think about what they're doing, the next thing that happens from there is that when the Australian Early Development Census is applied, those services that had children in them that didn't score well on that will be found to not being um, effectively teaching the part of the early years learning framework that says children should be effective communicators. And then the curriculum gets changed to meet that output. We see it happening with schools, with you know, NAPLAN testing, etc. And it's the first indication that someone wants to do it to our sector. And I think that's scary. Wow. So that, mm. that, yeah, that's a very interesting, Lisa. I think uh, I didn't I didn't pull that specific point out, but it's a really interesting point. Leanne, I think the, the big headline out of this, and Lisa obviously referred to it, and it was it played out in the media sort of over the course of a day or two, was that pretty, you know, that stark headline figure, which the government, you know, gleefully ran with, what, which is, you know, we've tipped a huge amount. We've tipped, you know, X billions of dollars into the school system, and it's not paying off in educational outcomes and they're basically using that as an you know as a as a justification to say well they're not specifically saying we won't you know we won't do any different in funding but that's the implication they're making um what's your you know what's your sort of take on that part of it um well i yeah i don't know whether it's specifically on that for me the whole thing was a bit like and it was obviously done very quickly so i think this is part of the problem with it but it feels like it's that, I don't know whether anyone remembers that ad where the person's standing in the middle of the footy field and everybody's around is saying, throw it to me, throw it to me. <laughs> so, do either of you remember that? Maybe Doesn't ring a bell. Bit older. No, and, and, and it's a bit like that for me. There's all these different aspects of it that it's, you know, one point of it's talking about data and then another part's talking about actual evidence, but the two seem to be a bit confused because there's, you know, there's data in early childhood and we're not using it properly, but we actually don't have evidence to prove that we're doing this. And then there's this, there's the AEDC and there's nothing really that tells us that there's any good outcomes. And it just feels like it goes all over the place. And it and in some places it's just missed um, some of the things that are actually happening as well. It talks about there not being any kind of research agenda. And yet there there has been um, a race he's produced and been funded to produce research agendas, um, you know, and there's, I mean, it does highlight some of the long-term stuff that's proving that early childhood can be useful or whatever, but it just goes all over the place. So it doesn't really come to any particular point. Um, and, yeah, I just couldn't, I, I can't see, like Lisa, I can't see that any good can come out of this. It feels like it's, it's all going to go in the, the wrong direction. But the, the one 
the one thing that I thought was kind of like the dull moment, which was on the in the overview on page 15, and if you look in box one, it talks about randomised trials to evaluate teaching assistants in the United Kingdom. And it talks about how they've spent all this money and they found that really there was no effect because sometimes the teachers, uh, the assistants stood up and did the teaching and sometimes, and it was all different. But when they put in training and when they put in support and when everybody... Um, did the job they were supposed to do, then it was a good outcome. I mean, that, and that's nothing to do with the data or the evidence. That's actually about professional development, about supporting people in their roles and about sticking with a plan. And so this is where I, I find that it just doesn't kind of meet the brief, I suppose. I think it's really interesting because I think the the report that's come, so I think it's probably fair to say that in the education sector, it's been viewed very negatively. Um and I guess I kind of want to, it's not exactly playing devil's advocate because I do actually, I'm, I'm sort of working through it in my head as I go through, but I wonder if part of the reaction is that there's just some uncomfortable, probably truths in there about what we do and how we do it. So it's really interesting and I'll link to it in the show notes, the conversation, um, do, a, do a great fact-checking series. So they basically look at um, reports or statements or media releases or whatever and basically check the facts and the the headline fact and I think where they've kind of not helped themselves is by making that the sort of big headline first you know finding and recommendation which means that it's all anyone's focusing on is that you know there's been a big increase in funding over the last 10 years without the results and the fact that the, the facts of the data kind of bear that out now that to me shouldn't be the end of the conversation, which is probably where the government would like to end that conversation and begin, where, and we're not going to pay any more. But we we probably can't argue with those facts that there's been, and we're sort of getting outside our remit of early childhood education, this is mostly focused on school funding, but there has been a significant increase in uh, investment in in schools, and we're not seeing results improved. Now, what that then needs means to me is that we need to then have the discussion about the context of that, and the fact check makes a good point. So it makes a good point saying that the most of the increase in funding is in wages for teachers, which have increased higher than CPI. So the actual increase is in terms of what's being spent on students is uh, beyond you know the, the teachers are employing is less, and there are huge issues with the with potential hang with, on, with the ascension of math. Hang on, hang on, Go. hang on. When you actually pay teachers more, <laughs> that actually helps students, believe it or not. Well, Lisa, I think you and I might agree in principle, but if we're having a discussion about the data, which I think we have to, that's that's what the data says. Now, we can analyse why that what might be, what the data says. But you can, yeah, you, can, yeah. you can do anything with data, Leah. You can, <laughs> you can spin it any way you want. It's like a, a profit and loss, really, isn't it? It can look any way... That you like it to look, but if it if it comes down to it, one of the big problems that we've got is that we don't we don't have this consistent approach to delivering on a policy. Everybody doesn't sign up to it, so we never fulfil the plan. So then we don't get the results. And then how do we measure the results? Nobody can agree on that either, because one minute it's you know standardised testing. I don't think it's ever measured in terms of civic contribution by children in any at any point. But you know there's there's just not that strong and thorough agreement and commitment to any particular policy, it flip-flops all over the place. And but not I... just to the policy, but also to the outcomes. Like one yeah. of the things that the three of us have spoken about this week is why the Productivity Commission? Why a body that embodies the word productivity, i.e. industry improving you know, output of widgets, why are they suddenly determining whether our education system is based on data or not. Now, 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 Lisa, I think that you're not going with the original remit of the Productivity Commission, which is about allocating community resources. Really, that's what that's what the Productivity Commission's all about. So it's not really uh, hang on, issue. May has been all about. <laughs> no, not May. That's the current. That's the current remit now. So, I mean, that, that it's. It's actually well. Look, I see your point because it's about being productive, but it's the out, it's how we measure that productivity. That's that's the that's probably the key problem, isn't it? But isn't but so in terms of and one of the things that I've seen in terms of a critique of this is has been a bit of a you know well you know the productivity commission is you know sort of just doing the government's work and and 
you know, doesn't fundamentally believe in this stuff as well. I, look, I don't necessarily buy that. They're independent. They're not directed by government, but they are. They're what they're there for. They're, they're, they're focused on cr- control yourself, Lisa, for a little bit. Control yourself for a little bit. It's they're, Leanne. Oh, it's Leanne. Leanne. You will need to control yourself as well. But they, 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 they are what they're set up for. And I agree. And I agree in, in general terms that they, they, this single report shouldn't be shaping the, um, how we move forward in terms of, you know, data or even, you know, what this would mean for the education system going forward. But I do, and this is, this is, this may be a bit of an unpopular opinion, but I, I do think data is really important in getting accurate and complete data. And if it's not necessary, if it's telling us stuff we don't necessarily like, I don't think we just get to throw up our hands and go, well, they're wrong and insane and I know what I'm doing is good. And they just kind of need to believe that. Do we not fundamentally have to, particularly given the advocacy we want to do in early childhood, that we we have to be able to prove that it will lead to positive outcomes, not just productivity and workforce participation, because I fundamentally don't believe that's why that's the primary reason for investing in early childhood. But we have to be able to prove that early childhood works, don't we? there's any issue with that I think I I totally agree with that but then if data starts being manipulated to prove otherwise I mean the point that Lisa made around the international evidence um, we, we looked at international evidence to determine uh, whether we're going to have 15 hours of, of early childhood education for every child in in Australia that's where that 15 hours came from so we're kind of happy to take that but we're not happy to take the other international evidence and so I think it is it's really about how we we spin that data and it's about lining all of that data up as well and having that as an open like an open source where data can be compared with other data rather than used in isolation or for the purpose that we so choose at that particular time. Yeah, Liam, I didn't think I didn't think that was groundbreaking, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, I just I just yeah, like read bits of it that says that suggests that there should be nationally consistent assessments of children in the early years, and I just have this terrifying. terrifying. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> I agree in terms of how that's worded. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, original evidence girl. I really love data. But I just, I'm not exactly sure if I trust people <laughs> that are outside of the sector that aren't early childhood teachers to be determining, you know, ways of measuring, you know, the outcomes of the EYLF. You know, it just scares the shit out of me. Imagine but... the one-year-olds lining up for their nappy land standardised testing. How terrifying <laughs> is that? You just started. That's that. Well, you just started the uh, the campaign there, Leanne. Against that, that's <laughs> that's done well. Oh, but but surely this what this becomes down to is an argument of degrees. I think we need to be really careful as a sector, but give particularly given how precarious our current position is in terms of advocacy and funding. I agree with you. That sounds in terms of how you've you know how you've worded that, Lisa. That sounds terrifying. But do I? fundamentally believe there should be no assessment of children at birth to five space? No, I think it's actually we need to find a way to do it properly and we need to find a way to do it in ways that will support children as well as make the case for why this is really important. But what worries me slightly, and I look, and, I'm, and to be clear, I'm probably going to be deliberately controversial to get a reaction here. What I sometimes see in the sector is, well, we don't care whether there's evidence or not, or we don't care whether you know, if we can, you know, prove what we're doing, we, we know what we're doing is right and you just need to listen to us. I don't think that argument's going to wash. And I think we've got to actually look at, particularly given that we know um, the AEDC results, so we know that children are starting school, that a quarter of children are starting school developmentally vulnerable on one scale or another. We, we're in that zero to five space. I think we have to better engage in this argument, whether we necessarily like it or not to find it icky we maybe we need to find better and more ethical ways to do it but i think we have to engage in this data space and i slightly worry that we kind of just want to vacate the field and would rather be a bit um elitist and pompous and go well they just don't get it and we're fantastic and just let us do what we're doing oh not liam i don't think that's what you know anyone in the sector you know would argue i think that there is less use of data and evidence and research in the sector that I'd like to see. But, 
if you look Lisa, at the, the, the quality area that is most being failed across Australia, thanks to the data we have from ASEQA, is quality area one. It's educational program practice. It is the one that educators are most struggling with. It is one that we hear time and time again that people either don't get the time to do it, don't understand it, or are finding it too difficult. And that's really, if we're going to be honest, like that's the stuff that is going to shift the results and the the improvement and well-being around children. I think we probably have to have the honest discussion about are we doing as well in that space as we need to? Yep. <laughs> I, I would love it if everything yeah. was wonderful and rosy in the garden. I would love it if the sector was perfect. We know it's not. We know that, you know, uh, you know that, nationally yeah, around 50% of services aren't even meeting the national quality standard. But I think part yes, that's very true. But part part of the balance there, and I think this is where we hear the the stuff around. Well, we know this works, and and we need to be strong in you know in our practice is about um, it's about professionalism, I suppose. And I think it is about having that confidence where there hasn't been to pursue professional our our educated educators approach to professional practice. You're right; it doesn't then say that evidence and, and data and all of those things aren't necessary, um, but it's it's making sure that it's not crossing the line and handing over the whole of uh, pedagogy to a standardised test. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I think, so topic two tonight, what we're going to get to in a little bit is going to be, we're going to sort of talk about innovation in in a regulating space. So we might, I think, I've got some thoughts on that I might hold up to that one, but off until topic two, but it's a really interesting discussion, and I don't, and I think I, I'm not entirely sure where I fall on that. I there is a critique to be made of the national quality standard, which I think overall is fantastic and works very fairly effectively. A critique that can be made of it, and possibly the early years learning framework itself, is that it's too general and it's too vague, and it's actually not something that can, for for many people, can be used as a specific document to support those outcomes in ways that probably could would it, there may be an argument to be made that maybe we do need to be a bit clearer around curriculum or, or at least approaches to early childhood given what we know about the data which says there are very specific and concrete things we can do to include to sorry improve the the executive function and the things for children that will support them to you know, go to schooling and lifelong learning I don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm not proposing a solution there. I, I, I don't think we should overhaul the NQS the Okay, now, I'll, I'll join Leanne. I'll <laughs> say the words that are about to come out of Leanne's mouth, which is, yeah, professional development goes a long way to helping, <laughs> you know, helping sure everyone's on the same page about using evidence to, you know, design pro educational programs and curriculum that actually work to achieve those things. Pity it's all gone now, isn't it? <laughs> mm, yeah. And, and look, all in all, this report, I think the points that you're making, Liam, are, are very um, significant, but I'm not sure that this report is actually talking to those points. I think it's, you know, if, if this was the um, Productivity Commission's report on workforce that was put <laughs> out, I think, 2011, I'd say, yep, embrace every recommendation and let's go for it. But it feels like this is maybe a bit quick and dirty and uh, it's not necessarily brought out the um, the real evidence about the evidence. Well, one oh, of the things... I'm, that's I'm, a good note on which to stop, I well, think. Well, I thought I might just do one more thing because there's a couple of recommendations that I think have been buried under the sort of this, this big picture discussion about where we're spending money and it's not working is that I think there are some actually really good recommendations there that probably should be adopted. And one which really surprised me, which was um, that the uh, longitudinal study of Australian children and the longitudinal study of Indigenous children um, has basically reached the point where those cohorts of children are now teenagers, which is fantastic in terms of tracking those outcomes, but there's no current plans or funding to sort of engage with a new cohort. And the um, the Productivity Commission sort of very firmly and strongly says the government needs to redo it and fund it, and this is something that will really um, support some of that stuff. So there mm. is, yeah, I think my recommendation to people would be um, to dig to dig deeper into it. And but also, I think you're right. Look, I think it was also not over, not give it more credence than it's than it's due. It is, you know, it is 
it is a slightly bizarre report and it's focused on some odd things, but I think that's the nature of the terms of reference. But I think it's not a weighty enough document to be used as the, as the basis for any fundamental policy change. Mm. So we're giving that sure. recommendation a thumbs up. That's a good one. I like that one. I want to do at least pull out one I thought we'd probably all agree on. Yeah, <laughs> Given that there's so few things that we all actually agree on. <laughs> well, like this is why we want to find them because I think the discussions are much better when we yeah. we, we get to we get to be a little bit uh, we get to have that disagreements sort of with each other. But um, yeah, I'd be, I'd be again as with all of our topics, I'd be really interested to hear from people in the sector and people um, who disagree with any of us or agree with us, you know, get in touch with us and we'll have our contact information at the end. So we're going to move on to topic two now, and it actually kind of flows nicely in a sort of way from topic one. We're going to be talking about uh, innovation in a sort of early childhood regulated space. So obviously with our Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, innovation and agility and nimbleness are now the catchphrases of the day, and early childhood doesn't want to be left behind. So we've got to make sure we are putting on our innovative thinking hats and coming up with the craziest ideas that we can come up with to uh, support children's learning and development. So, and the challenge of that, I guess, within a very highly regulated and highly uh, sort of boxed in space around a lot of the things we do. And Leanne, this was sort of your idea for a topic, so I might maybe just hand over straight to you. What do you, what, why did you want to sort of bring this up tonight? Um, it's just, this one's been in my head for a while about innovation and how we, uh, look at innovation in early childhood that goes beyond technology because that tends to be the thing that everybody flips to when we talk about innovation um, and how we do some of that experimentation with practice, with pedagogy, which sort of feeds to this evidence issue, you know, do we have the evidence for that um, and where that sits in people's practice because I was speaking with a group of non-early childhood people and talking about where do we, because we were talking innovation, I said, where do we get money for innovation in early childhood? And their first go-to was to talk about investing in early childhood for, to, you know, close the gap and disadvantage. But it wasn't actually about innovation. I think this is a space where there needs to be more conversation about trying out new stuff, thinking up, inventing, you know, all of those sorts of things that we need to do in education, but maybe we're a bit constrained because we're all trying to pre perform within um, the the standards and everybody's trying to work towards this kind of exceeding. And where does innovation fit within that? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic and it's not one that I've specifically thought about over the last little while, but as soon as you sort of mentioned it, and I was thinking before tonight, it did spark off a lot of thoughts. And yeah, I think you're right. I think we the the regulated space has sort of two sort of strange conflicting effects. One is that we're sort of trying to meet these very specific standards, uh, but also that they're they're also broad and general in a positive sense of the word. Is that there's so many ways to get it, we're not quite sure how to do it. I think. I'm going to be, in terms of innovation, I'm actually going to propose a bit that the innovative thing for the early childhood sector to do might be to actually to go back to basics. So I think we do, the sector, <laughs> well, I think we, we're we often victims of butterfly chasing, I think, in the sector, and I think particularly in quality area one, so educational program and practice, we're always sort of looking for, you know, we sort of talked about this, you know, about the, you know, the, the communication apps. We're looking for the solution to documentation and we're going to PDs that will promise, you know, you know, this is the revolutionary way to do it and blah, 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 blah. I think we, we worry too much a bit about that part of it without actually tracking back, pulling back and going back to basics around, well, what are the things that are actually going to support children to do, to meet the five learning outcomes, but do those things we, we claim, this is what I was sort of talking about in the first segment, to do the things that we claim the sector is here to do, which is, you know, primarily if we look at the research is supporting children's executive function, things like self-regulation, resilience, um, and uh, sort of independent skills. What are we, you know, what are the innovative things we could do that actually focus on that? How are we communicating that to families? How are we communicating that, communicating that to our colleagues? You know, there's, I'd really recommend it's not, I'm going to sneak in an additional recommendation before the end of the podcast, but for any educators that haven't been to the Harvard Centre on the Developing Child, I go there really regularly and it, it really changed the way I think about the work I do in early childhood education a few years back. It's an incredible online free resource from Harvard, so you know it's great. 
but it's they they've done a huge amount of research and on uh, child's brain development and that can be a bit of a controversial topic you know amongst parts of the sector about how we analyze children's brains but i think you know we have to sort of work with what we've got but it has these really clear science-based fact-based approaches to these are the things that will support children to succeed and perform they're not the fancy things like um you know art and you know amazing art and craft and dance and yoga and all that kind of stuff it's the it's the basic building blocks around reading to children about nursery rhymes and counting and repetition and the exposure to language it's and music the, yeah it's the stuff that we i think we we know instinctually, but we also don't think about it anymore. We, we think about, well, what's the amazing activity I've got to set up? I actually think a really innovative thing for the sector to do would actually be to go right back to those basics and say, you know, we're not doing the, the fancy stuff. We are doing this stuff. Here's how it works. And we're going to encourage families to do it at home as well. I think that could actually, if more people looked at the, the science-based stuff around this in the sector, I think it could actually lead to a really innovative change in how we do what we do. I think there's a number of structural reasons why the sector um, doesn't innovate more and why it couldn't innovate more. I think there's things like the lack of resources because innovation often costs money. When we're all operating at bare-to-the-bone budgets, is there a director prepared to expend the money to, on an innovative you know, part of practice? We also don't have, you know, the professional development that would encourage innovation. We also don't have the uh, a way to ensure that our educators have um, support and trust and confidence to try new practices. They're also scared about not meeting exceeding, that there just isn't that kind of atmosphere of, yeah, have a go. Why don't you see it? You know? I also think that people are so scared about the regulations that the existence of the regulations works against innovation because people are, are so scared about risks rather than looking at, at you know risks as something that can be managed in an innovation kind of concept. Instead, they're, they're really scared about you know, breaking some regulation that may or may not exist. And I think, um, you know, it's also about what happens in our, particularly in our TAFE systems or in our RTO systems. I think more and more people are being taught this is the way we, we do things in sector. And I well, it's kind that's, of that's competency-based training. I mean, anything that's yeah. competency-based training has to, has to satisfy or not satisfy a competency. So, yes. That's very true. I wonder as well, and this is not to make an argument that we should continue to starve the sector of funding or make things more difficult to people, but isn't there sort of an argument that innovation can also come from those restrictions and difficulties and challenges that a lot of, you know, unique and creative ways of doing things come from adversity and come from challenge and, and difficulty? Well, I, I'm not sure. That that's very true. We do innovate when we're faced with challenges. But we can only take risks if we are well resourced, I think, and that's that's you know you, people need to have the freedom to think, the freedom and time to try things out that aren't going to be um, you know risky in terms of them not meeting particular standards. So it's working within within a compliance landscape, but having, as Lisa says, the resources and the time and all of those things to to be creative and be. And, and just be a bit brave, I suppose, and have courage. I mean, there's probably plenty of people in our sector who are doing that. It'd be interesting to hear any feedback on, on innovations. But I I was just going to say, I think at this time, the, the best time of my school life in the 70s, where I was uh, subject to, and I'd love to hear if anybody else had this, two years of innovative education. One was called Man, A Course of Study, and the other was called um, the other was new maths, and they were based on Jerome Bruner's, um, you know, theories. Oh my goodness, that was the most mind-expanding, wonderful time of my school life that I ever had. <laughs> and I think if I hadn't had that, that that would 
you know, I, I just wouldn't do, I would never have engaged properly with schools. So I wonder about kind of where those where the opportunity is. I, I don't think that teacher lasted more than a couple of years, by the way. I think he was ousted or he may have... He may innovated be, himself um, out of a job. Yeah, he was amazing, Mr McGregor. I always remember him. But um, I just, you know, I, I wonder where the opportunity is to, to have that innovation. And I wonder because what I was going to, when I was about to really interrupt you, Leanne, was um, when you are making the point about innovative things that are probably already happening in centres and I was... I was thinking, I bet there are amazing things happening in the centres and I wonder if some of the isolation we see in the sector where people are a bit, um, where it's, it is challenging to network with other you know, colleagues, even within organisations, they can be quite siloed. And I just wonder if we're not, there are probably amazing things happening and probably we're, not, we're just not very good at sharing them. Yeah, that will. There's an opportunity to to share. And the other the other thing that I was sort of thinking, and I'm probably going on a bit now, so you might need to edit me out here, Liam. But um, I was looking at the um, measuring innovation in education. There's nothing there for early childhood in the OECD reports. And um, the these were the top five innovations in pedagogic practice. More observation and description in secondary school science lessons. More use of answer explanation in primary and secondary maths. More use of texts as supplementary resources in primary school science. More self-direction in complex decision-making and more active learning. Oh, wow. Gosh. Oh, wow. Okay. So, Leanne, I, I fell asleep I, after the first point. What were the other ones? And when I read that, I thought, oh, my goodness, early childhood education is like off the the scale in terms of innovation in comparison to that. So then I thought, well, maybe we are really already just doing it and amazing and, and we need to just sort of shout out about it a bit more. Oh, my God. Can someone innovate that rating system for them? That's incredible. <laughs> all right well we probably want to wrap up tonight before we go too long we've obviously got our recommendations still to come uh lisa did you want to give us your recommendation for the week first look i do and i actually would like to give some key line facts out of it in case anyone doesn't have the time to go and search for the publication and read it what it is it's a publication put out by a sequel it's called Education Program and Practice, an analysis of quality area one of the National Quality Standard. So it's the beginning of a, a series of occasional papers that they're doing, actually drilling down into the data about a particular quality standard. And this one's about on quality area one. When you open up the book, ignore the first 13 pages. I've pre-culled them for you. You don't need to read them. It's all stuff that if you're working in the sector, you should know. But then you get into the interesting bit and it starts comparing how the states are doing on quality area one. And apart from Northern Territory, which is a bit down, and Victoria, which is a bit up, the states are kind of all going pretty much the same on QA1, except for South Australia. It's got almost double the services that are exceeding in QA1 as the other states. So I want to know what that one's about. I think we need to look at that. If they're doing something good, then let's hear about it. Then you look at service types, right? So it compares how the different service types are doing on QA1. Preschools and kindergartens are absolutely nailing it. They're 52% of preschools and kindergartens are exceeding compared to 21% of long daycares and only 12% of family daycares. Which makes you think there's a fairly you know, clear definition of service type until you look at provider management type. And I think this is why I really like this one, this document. It shows us that 16, only 16% 16 of for-profit services exceeded in quality area one compared to 35% of community-based services. And a whopping 30% of for-profit services are only rated as working towards quality area one. And if you think about it, probably more kindergartens and preschools are government-run or community-based. So ownership probably also skews the statistics on service type. And unfortunately, the report also tells us, and it's quite sad, that more services in higher socioeconomic economic areas exceed QA1 than in lower areas. 
yeah, not a surprising statistic, but yeah, definitely something to ponder and work on because obviously, I mean, you, you would you almost want well not the reverse. You'd want everyone doing well, but the ones who would most benefit from exceeding approaches to quality area one would be uh, lower socioeconomic uh, areas. Strangely enough, it's the lower socioeconomic areas where there's clusters of for-profit services. Ah, what a shocker. All right, thanks, Lisa. What about you, Leanne? Uh, yeah, my one's from, this one brings all our themes together tonight, um, from the conversation, which is uh, titled, Students are not hardwired to learn in different ways. We need to stop using unproven harmful methods. And it's an interesting perspective on um, the idea that people that children don't have different learning styles, but it still comes down in favour of seeing every child as an individual and working to their their unique needs. So it's it's a it's like a, a bonus. This particular article it's got every everything we've been talking about tonight, but it agrees with us as well. Thanks, Leanne. I'm tempted to give you a challenge. I think that might be. Is that the third conversation article you've done as your recommendation? Uh, yeah. Okay, I need to get off those. We're going to challenge okay. you. Something different next week. I'll, I'll go for the Daily Telegraph next week. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Excellent. Finally, some common sense. Um, mine's a quick one because I think we'd, we'll, we'll, we'll tackle this topic in a separate podcast later because it's obviously a big one. But um, I doubt ever, anyone in the sector missed the news about that there was uh, early childhood strike action for the first time in a very long time in Australia last week. Um, I'll include a link uh, in the show notes as well as the links to both of Lisa's recommendations and some of the other documents we've discussed tonight um, in the show notes, but I'll link to the ABC article. But um, it's it's a big change and, and I, one I'm really excited to see more of. I think this is the things that will that will start to shift thing. It was a bit of a symbolic action and it was um, it wasn't, you know, sort of an all day strike. It was, you know, in the afternoon and it was sort of carefully managed, but um, it's this is the stuff I, I'm that I'm really interested in. It's the thing I think will slowly start to really, you know, lead to some more collective action. So well done to all of the educators involved and to United Voice for organising that. And let's hope it's the first of many. To be honest, I'd love to see you know rolling strikes taking place everywhere as a means of affecting change. You're radical. I know I'm a data-driven, evidence-based radical, Lisa. That's me. <laughs> I'm going to change my Twitter bio to that tonight. Um, so there are recommendations. We hope you enjoy them. Um, as uh, as promised, we, we want to give a shout out to two people that this week have rated and reviewed us. We really appreciate it. Um, I'll give my normal spiel that um, rating and reviewing us in the iTunes store really helps other like-minded people find the podcast. It just bumps us up the rating a bit. So we really appreciate when people do that for us. So we have a review from Katie Histon. So thanks, Katie. And um, she gets bonus points for that she's a tea drinker like I am. So, Katie, um, we really appreciate you saying kind words about our podcast and that um, you know, we're sort of helping you out in your last semester of uni while you're working full-time, which um, I know the feeling. So uh, good luck and hope you hope you do well with your last semester and that you're enjoying our conversations. Um, we've also had a very special review. It's actually an ode from Red Ruby Scarlet, who's given us a wonderful review on the iTunes store, which is wonderful for anyone who's... And it's a wonderful ode. It is. I, I, I cannot give it any justice, so there's no way I'm going to read it on this podcast. We will... You, you can see it on our iTunes page in the iTunes store. Uh, I think, Lisa, did Red Ruby also post it in the social justice uh, forum? It was on one of these... Yes, I think she might have in the Facebook social justice I, page. She's posted it somewhere, so I'll make sure I, I post a link to it. For those who don't know... Um, Red Ruby Scarlet is a pr- provocative and challenging and very, very unique thinker on early childhood and is one of the most powerful voices in uh, social justice and equity in early childhood in Australia. The sector is most definitely richer for her experience and knowledge and very unique way of thinking about things. She's one of the founding members of the Social Justice and Early Childhood group, which uh, is a fantastic group. They have a conference every year. Um, they actually had two last year. They had one in Sydney and in Melbourne that focus on um, those social justice issues, which are really important to keep in the forefront of our mind as educators. But um, we also wanted to, just to, in terms of thanking Red for, for promoting our 
our little podcast, I also just wanted to give a big shout out. She's um, just published the third edition of the Anti-Bias in Early Childhood Approach, which is, uh, I think it's about 15 years old. It was originally published published by the magnificent Elizabeth Dow. Um, and the new edition features uh, the stories of over 50 early childhood educators who um, are sharing... One of which is Leanne Gibbs. Well, what a coincidence. Leanne Gibbs <laughs> is in this book as well. And she's one of, you know, 50 early childhood professionals have shared, you know, their powerful stories of anti-bias curriculum approaches. How did you... What, what is it exciting to be published in that document, Lisa? I can only imagine that the answer is... Leanne. Yes. Oh, Leanne. Leanne. <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah, it's hard good. with these two L's and two, three L's and two of the yeah. three L's. <laughs> it's been fantastic to be part of it, Liam. And I think, um, you know, when anti-bias was first kind of introduced into Australia, it was a pretty groundbreaking. That was innovative. That was innovation. And um, it's it was great to be asked to write a chapter. Mine's heavily referencing Anne Stonehouse's previous work. So I, I don't think I can take too much credit for my chapter. It, it sort of wrote itself. I think it's interesting, even though it's about 15 years old now and this third edition is building obviously on the work of the previous two, it's hard to think of a, a, a time when we need um, specific approaches to teaching tolerance mm -hmm. and social justice than in Australia at the moment. I would really recommend this becomes a you know a, something that's in every early childhood centre and that educators are looking into. So uh, it gets our strongest recommendation from all three of us, and you can. Yeah, Lem, I'd have to back that up. I had the privilege of proofreading the final um, when That's it was right, finally yes. So don't, please don't um, tell me about every mistake that I've let through. Please but send any typos discovered directly just... to at Lisa J Bryant on Twitter. <laughs> It was just absolutely fascinating. From cover to cover, there wasn't, you know, um, like one page of it that wasn't revelatory and interesting and exciting intellectually to read. So I um, couldn't recommend it highly enough. So if to purchase a copy, you can head to multiverse.com.au forward slash antibias, and we really thank... Red and all the contributors in that for um, contributing to that knowledge in early childhood. It's 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 very powerful. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on a copy as well. Let's wrap it up for tonight. I think we've gone again well over our prescribed time limit. We probably just need to give up on Liam, that. Liam, it's just because you're so talkative. I know. Well, you know, I'm just I'm I'm you, that's what I'm here for, Lisa. In the podcast world, <laughs> I'm just here to. To, to talk and talk and talk and, and eventually let the two of you get a word in edgeways. But I'm going to... <laughs> we'll give you a run for the money <laughs> and talk and <laughs> So I'm going to finish up as we always do. You can find us, uh, the podcast, on Twitter at Early Edu Show. That's Early Edu Show. We really value any feedback and uh, any comments you want to make. You can sort of hit the podcast up there. You can find me in particular at Liam McNicholas. You can find me at Lisa J. Bryant. And me at Leanne M. Gibbs 3. <clears throat> so thanks for joining us for another, another episode and we will catch up with you all next week. So it's bye from me. And from me. And from me. <laughs>